Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. We are in chapter 12, and we are in the heart of chapter 12. We are going to be reading verses 12 to 26, but before we get into verses 12 to 26, I wanted to uh, first highlight something that I have not talked about, and I was a bit remiss earlier that I, I didn't, and that is the word service in these opening verses of chapter 12. We were talking about the spiritual gifts and the importance of seeing how these gifts should orient us towards other. Well, does not service draw that out? That any and every gift we receive from God is intended for what? But other. Why? Because God is love. And love, by definition, at least according to St. Thomas Aquinas, is to will the good of the other for the sake of other, right? Love in its lived form is never about self, but always about other. And we love other by entering into the service of how we are called to exercise the gift that God has given to us. So within the context of the spiritual, the charismatic gifts of God, Yes, we are to see these gifts as a service, building up the church of God. What do we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5, 6 and following? That we are co-workers, huh, building up the kingdom of God. And how do we do that? Yes, in the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, and within that, exercising our charismatic gifts, where we are called to encounter one another, mingle with one another about the stuff of God. All right, verses 12 to 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the organs in the body each one of them as he chose. If all were a single organ, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body which we think less honorable we invest with the greater honor, and our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior part, 
that there may be no discord in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, there's a point I want to address that is very applicable today, and that's this idea of how we think about unity. George Montague has a great line, and I just wanted to go ahead and read this and just listen to these words. It is not a matter of some kind of metaphoric unity in diversity that could be applied to any group. It is a matter of the kind of unity and diversity that exists in the body of Christ. It is not a question of how the many can be one, but how the one, Christ, can be many. So why do I highlight these words by Montague? Because I really do think they, they cut to the heart of today's ideology of tolerance and, and coexistence. We want to take all of these different faiths, all of these different ideologies, and blend them in and harmonize them as if we can find peace within that. You know, you might find a bumper sticker that says peace in all of these different religious signs and symbols. And that's all fine and well. We are called to engage one another in that deeper sense of reverence and and generosity. But don't confuse the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what's very important here. We want to be nice to one another. But Jesus Christ didn't come to just reveal what it means to be nice, okay? Jesus wasn't crucified because he was the nicest of all nicer guys, He was crucified because he proclaimed to be the Messiah. He proclaimed to be the fulfillment to the promise. He proclaimed to be the satisfaction of every ache, every desire, every longing. He proclaimed to be God, right? He proclaimed to be God. And so on that truth alone, we have to be mindful of what he revealed and what is recorded in the Gospels, and what St. Paul speaks to, especially if it is not in harmony with the many ideologies today that wish to espouse towards Christianity, but really without any understanding of what Christianity is. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ came to reveal truth, and if that truth isn't studied, how can we possibly know that truth? Now, I'm not judging any one person, certainly Jesus Christ condemns that. He condemns judging what you don't see. I'm simply making an objective observation. I would never challenge anyone on the front of mathematics and science if I have not studied it, right? Because certainly mathematics and science has revealed truth, and you respect the person who has studied that. I think we need to transfer that to the spiritual conversation, the religious dialogue, because there's this tendency to not consider that Christ came to reveal objective truth. And it leaves us with these conversations that are nothing more than point-counterpoint. We want to normalize culture. But even to say that, what does that really mean? We want a new normal. Well, (laughs) a new normal still needs something objective. Don't we use the phrase, an objective norm? We have to be moving towards an object. But if we don't believe that Christ has come to reveal definitive, absolute truth, then what are we moving towards other than what our own opinions drive us towards? Jesus says, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can tolerate one another. We can coexist with one another. But if we're doing that minus the revelation of Jesus Christ, it won't end anywhere good. And so the point to be had here is let's put the revelation of Jesus Christ in the middle. And now let's have the dialogue. Let's have the conversation. And know that this isn't about judging any one person. It really isn't. Because I'm not about that, and, and certainly I wouldn't want anyone judging me. I wouldn't want anyone thinking they know things about me that they really don't know. I would want someone coming to me and saying, Hey, Joe, I saw that you just ran red light, and that's not the right thing to do. And I can tell you that that's not the right thing to do because, well, running a red light is, objectively speaking, not the right thing to do, okay? Right, so from the outset, certainly an, an important point to uh, talk about. Now, as far as Paul's analogy goes, it, it first addresses those who think that because their gift is less sensational, they do not belong to the body. What do we read? If a foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it does not, for this reason, belong any less to the body. This certainly is an obvious encouragement to the weaker members of the community, right? Who clearly are needed just as much as the apparent stronger ones are. I love what Paul does here because he immediately speaks to each and every one of us who think they are better than the next person, who think their gifts, their talents, and what they do is more important than the next person. And maybe at one time in our life, we have all slipped into this very prideful mindset. But St. Paul says, no, 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 no. You can't do that. In point of fact, verse 18 elevates the disposition of this diversity that he's speaking to by affirming that it is God who has so arranged the body. What do we read? God placed the parts, each and every one of them, in the body as he intended. This is why we are not to play around with revealed truth, because what is revealed truth is what God intended, right? We play God when we start identifying things for what they are not in the natural realm. So God places the parts, each and every one of them, in the body as he intended. So, as God willed the human body to have many interdependent parts, so it is with the church. There is no unimportant member. Here, George Montague reflects, and I love this, against our culture's deification of the independence, Paul stresses interdependence. God's plan for unity is not uniformity, but harmony. The interaction of many different members with very diverse gifts, learning to use their gifts to build and support one another. So here we go back to that initial quote that I was speaking to. It is not a question of how the many can be one, but how the one, Christ, can be many. I have always felt that the beauty of the body of Christ lies in how we accept how God has created us, right? And how we allow that acceptance to become who we are, seeking to become more in God, seeking to become the best versions of who God desires us to be. Therein lies the beauty, 
not in whatever we want to make of it, but once we have come to see what God intended, how we make that. Now, Paul turns to those who think their gift is so important that they can do without the others, or at least without some of the other gifts that they consider inferior. Quite the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are all the more necessary. So here again, he's driving home the point. If you think for a second you can go without this other part, no. Not only can you not go without that other part, but they are all the more necessary. They are quintessential to your success. And this is why (laughs) living out our vocation as sons and daughters of God, living out our vocation in the virtue of God is important, not just for our salvation, as we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12, but also for the salvation of others. How many times has it happened in your life where God told you, you want to know what? I wanted you to go to this person or that person and let them know that they weren't doing what they should do or to let them know that they were hurting someone. Has God ever whispered that in your ear? Why did you hear that? Well, because we are one body. My friends, as St. John Paul II liked to say, we were born into communion, and consequently we are saved in communion. That is to say, my friends, as we speak to this call we have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, we do so in how we love one another. We either choose life or death. We either choose grace or sin. We either choose heaven or hell. It's before us. That's why living out our faith in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our cities, in our states, in our nations, and on the international arena is so important. It's so important. Okay, now in verses 25 to 26, Paul suddenly shifts his thought to show not only that the different parts are necessary and complementary, but also that the parts may have the same concern for one another. And this dovetails what I was just talking about. That essentially, the quality of life in the body of Christ can be judged by how much care the stronger members have for the weaker ones, right? George Montague, in his reflection on this, offers up a a nice image here. A, A succular model of a corporation may be marked by individuals climbing over others to get to the top. (laughs) Yet in the family of the church, he says, what counts is not competition, but compassion for one another. In fact, the most important person is the most needy. And who is George Montague talking about there? Well, you know, the poor, the sick, the handicapped, the elderly, the lonely, the ones to whom Jesus was sent to bring the good news, right? Who are the poor in your community? Who are the sick in your community? Who are the handicapped? Who are the lonely ones in your community? Identify them and go to them. This is what this passage, this narrative is all about. Is it not? There's many applications of this narrative to our everyday life, for sure. But this is the lead point. Make no mistake about it. What are we doing in our call to build up the body of Christ? Because this whole narrative was set up by what? The charismatic gifts. And while the charismatic gifts certainly apply to the spiritual works of mercy, they are also tied to the corporal works of mercy. 
we bring who we are in both body and soul to those who are in material need. So yeah, identify who those folks are in your community. And in doing so, be mindful of how God might be calling you to bring your gifts to them. Uh, You have heard me talk about the exponential rise of homeless in our community, and certainly the homeless need to be ministered to, and this community here in Chico is doing a lot of good in their Christian outreach, for sure. But there is another community that we need to identify, and, and that is all of those elderly who have been left alone in the convalescent homes. What did St. Mother Teresa say? St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta? Yes, there are many who are suffering here in India, but you have a much greater cancer in the West, and that is the absence of love. The absence of love where people die alone. And so, Let us identify within our own communities those convalescent homes and go to them. Remember that they might be a right leg or left leg, a right hand or left hand, or maybe an eye or an ear, whatever they might be. In the one body of Christ, know that God is calling you to go to them, to serve them. If you are to draw anything from what I do here on the radio, just not this evening, But every evening, hopefully, hopefully it is this vocation that has been entrusted with us and to us to go forth and serve and minister to those who are alone, always remembering the words of our Lord. To the least of your brethren, you did it unto me. So let us go see Jesus in the convalescent home and let's do it together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's be in solidarity with one another. Is not what we are talking about right now about that overarching principle of solidarity? Solidarity defined as John Paul II would define it as civic friendship. But we could even probe a little more. It's a civic friendship that is rooted in love, that aforementioned definition of willing the good of the other. Put yourself in the shoes of the elderly who have just been abandoned by someone, who are left alone. You know, I I make these visits, and I am always astounded to hear that some of these folks, not all of them, I don't want to make that kind of judgment, but some of these folks have not been visited in months, in some cases years, by anyone. That's the kind of poverty that St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta is talking about. So let us call those who we, who we might not know right now, today, our friend by going and visiting them. If not today, tomorrow, and if not tomorrow, this week, and if not this week, as soon as you can, as soon as you are able. Remembering the words of St. Paul that just as in the human body, when one member suffers, so the rest of the members of the body suffer with it. This is what it means to have compassion, compassio, in the Latin there, to suffer with, to put yourself in the shoes of another and try to identify as much as you can. We can never do it perfectly. We can never be in the shoes as they are literally in the shoes. But we can stretch ourselves in our imagination and to, as best as we can, put ourselves in the shoes of another and hopefully 
that might convict you to serve the body of Christ in a new way. Remember, my friends, what mercy is all about. Love is mercy. When it sees another person suffering and is so gripped by that suffering that you seek to do something about it. That's mercy. Okay. How about this last line? If one part is honored, all the part shares its joy. If one part is honored, all the parts share its joy. This certainly is a contradiction to today's spirit of envy, right? We see another person honored, and what do we do? We want that honor, okay? Now we seek in our secular ambition to be in that person's shoes. Isn't there a parody there? Let us take a step back and think about what I just said. Compassion is to put yourself in the shoes of another. And yet, the only time we do that, that is, in its secular context, put ourselves into the shoes of another person, is when we want to receive an honor, is when we want an elevation of status. Let us turn this whole thing upside down so as to turn it right side up and renew our Christian vocation and say with one loud voice in uniformity, we no longer want to be in the shoes of the person who's receiving the honor. We applaud the person receiving the honor. We share in their joy all the while mindful that there are those who are suffering and we need to run to their aid. Isn't that interesting? That, that juxtaposition. Rejoice in their honor. Joy is a, is a powerful charism in of itself, is it not? Charism comes from the Greek charis. Charis is the Greek root for joy. Joy and grace are twins. They belong together. They are tied to each other. So it is right that we would be joyful, that we would rejoice when we see someone receiving an honor. All right, how about verses 27 to 31? Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, then healers, helpers, administrators, speakers in various kinds of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. What is going on here? Well, this language of first apostles, apostleship is given pride of place among the ministerial gifts. We know that. This is because the apostles saw Christ risen from the dead and were directly charged by him to what? Spread the gospel. Their mission to lay the initial foundations of the church and the world is essentially unrepeatable. And out from this apostleship, Paul gives us a series of roles, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles, healers, helpers, and then he closes the chapter with this verse, desire the higher gifts. What is he talking about there? Well, <laughs> Paul is preparing his readers for what he's about to talk about. For chapter 13, which is nothing more but an exposition of God's greatest gifts, faith, hope, 
and the highest of all high gifts, love itself. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Love is the most excellent way. Love is what infuses all of these gifts with its life-giving power. Love is what infuses your vocation to be redemptive. What did he just talk about there? Teachers, administrators, prophets, all of these gifts are only redemptive insofar as they are infused with love itself. So this is why we need to reroute ourselves in our daily relationship with Jesus Christ and why we need to examine our conscience. What did I talk about last week? That all-important examination of conscience? At the end of our days, we need to look back and ask ourselves, how could have I done this better or, or how could I have done that better? All right, Lord, I saw you working in this moment and I saw you working in that moment. Identify strengths and weaknesses and, and be humble in doing so so that the next day you might be a better version of who God is calling you to be in the exercising of your gifts. So as we wrap up our reflection this evening, I want you to read ahead chapter 13, because there is a reason why he parachutes in this chapter between 12 and 14, because without these theological virtues, most especially love, this whole discussion on the charismatic gifts and how they build up the body of Christ collapses, crumbles. Okay, so do that. I've given you a homework assignment. Read chapter 13 and, and read it carefully and do so in the light of what we have been talking about this week. All right. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.